I'm so glad to be with you guys this weekend. I'm so glad to be back home. Um, I don't know if California will ever earn that status, but even if it does, Capitol Hill will never lose it. This is, this is the place where, uh, where the Lord just met me uh, and provided the best church community I've ever had in my life, and I'm grateful for our season here, and I'm so glad to be here this morning. Um, yeah, I'm uh, leading a school called Calvary Chapel Bible College in California. Our goal, our heart, our mission is to provide a biblical foundation for every calling. And so the school's been around since 1975 uh, and has raised up and trained up people to live a faithful witness to Jesus Christ in the world uh, that we live in today. I love that school. I love serving that school. I'm excited for the future of that school. Uh, And I'd love to tell you more about it if you'd like to hear about it. We have about 90 students right now living in the San Bernardino Mountains. uh, And then we have another 120 students online. uh, And uh, yeah, that's what I'm all about these days. But this morning, my goal, my purpose, my opportunity, and my privilege is to share with you from the book of Colossians. And so if you would open up to Colossians chapter 2, we'll read through this passage As Paul is writing to this church in Colossae, then we'll pray and we will look deeper. As we read through verses 6 through 15 this morning, I want you to pay special attention as we read to how verse 6 functions as a heading for everything else. Effectively, Paul is going to tell us what to do, and then he's going to tell us how to do it, okay? And so read with me here in verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, and has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these words of truth about what's available to us in Jesus Christ, I ask that you would help us understand the provisions you have given us, not just for our eternal life with you, but for an abundant life here on earth. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to see the sufficiency 
of what you have done in Jesus Christ for our present day problems and all of our needs and that we would be able to continue in Christ Jesus just as we began. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Again, as I mentioned here in verse 6, Paul gives us a heading. In fact, he gives us a command, a commission. He says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue your lives in him. So, obviously, the audience that Paul is speaking to here, the church members of Colossae, have a relationship with Jesus Christ. At some point in their past, they have become believers in the gospel. They have come to understand that God sent Jesus Christ to live the life they could not live, to die the death that they deserved, to give them forgiveness from their sins, to provide them with the Holy Spirit, to give them salvation. That would be the big topical word that the New Testament uses. But notice that for Paul, that is just a beginning, not an ending. Notice for Paul, it's not just believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved and then nothing. It's so then, just as you received Christ, continue to live your lives in him. The gospel isn't just something that begins your relationship with God. It's the way that you continue. In other words, what God has done in Jesus Christ is not just about your eternal state and what will happen one day when you die. It's about today, tomorrow, and all the days in between. What he wants to talk to us about this morning, what God wants to speak to us about this morning, is what it looks like to continue in Jesus. What it looks like to live the Christian life. What it looks like to grow in our faith. What it looks like to experience the depth of the gospel and not just the introduction. And so the question is, okay, how do we live as Christians? And actually, much of the New Testament seeks to answer this question, especially the epistles, the letters of Paul and Peter and James and Jude, okay? That's what it's focused on, but here, the concern in Colossae, in this city, uh, in the, uh, you know, eastern world, the city of Colossae, the concern is that they have options, You see, in the first century, the people of Colossae grew up in a time where going about life had a buffet mentality. And so you take from this spirituality and from this religion and you worship this pantheon of gods. You don't serve a god, but gods plural. And you draw from this ethical camp and you you assemble it together and you go, okay, this is my personal way of being. But now these people have met Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, as he says, is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so the option is, okay, do we continue to go about living our life through the buffet mentality, or do we embrace the sufficiency of what we have in Christ? Now, if we talk about paganism, if we talk about a pluralistic religion, if we talk about a pantheon of gods, that may feel very ancient to you. But that smorgasbord spirituality, I actually think, is very modern. I think everybody is just trying to piece together and live their best life, drawing from all of these things. We have become eclectic in our theology, in our philosophy. What works for you reigns supreme. But for Paul... 
He says there's only one way to continue in Christ, and no surprise, the only way to continue in Christ is in Christ. That's the point that Paul wants to make. Just as you began, so also you continue. If God has given you life in Jesus Christ, he wants to continue to develop that life in Jesus Christ. And so ultimately here, Paul is suggesting that in what you've already received, you have everything you need. Okay. Now let's be clear about a few things here. First, this is not a downplaying of the tools that human beings have developed to get better at stuff, including mental health and areas like this. It doesn't mean that you can't learn or glean from ethical teachers or living examples or philosophies or wisdoms. All of those things are helpful. What Paul's concerned is that any of them become ultimate. You see, the tendency for human philosophies and ways of being is that we overpromise and underdeliver, like coconut oil, right? Or Mangosteen or some of these other uh, MMLA products, you know, where it's like, this will not just change your life, improve your marriage, make you, you know, jump on the IQ scale, right? We have this tendency. What we're looking for are not answers how to do A, B, or C. We're looking for the full alphabet all the time. Okay. Now, the second, so here's maybe, maybe this is helpful. In some of these places, and, and it doesn't matter if it's yoga or or contemplation and meditation. It doesn't matter if it's seeing a counselor or or going back to school. It it doesn't matter what the model or methodology is. As long as you engage with it as a practitioner and not a priest, as long as you don't buy into the ultimacy of these things, yeah, you can learn from all places. By God's common grace, he allows human beings, apart from their decision on him, to discover, discover real truths about the world we live in to the benefit of humanity, okay? But those truths become inflated to the point that they become deceptive. That's the danger. There's a second clarification here. When we read, so just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, you need to remember that this is not just you and Jesus solo, We need to remember that when we talk about Jesus Christ as Lord, we also need to talk about the body of Christ, the church. And so when he says, just as you received Christ Jesus, that's in the context of being grafted into the tree of God's blessing, Romans chapter 11, to becoming a part of the people of God, Ephesians 2, to uh, being baptized into the body of Christ and becoming members of his body. There is no way to walk the Christian walk apart from the community called the body of Christ. Okay. In the same way. The idea here is not that you can settle for the Jesus you knew. There's more to know. And so you don't just need the word that was given to you in the gospel that says, Jesus died for your sins, believe and you shall be saved. You need to know the fullness of who Jesus is. And the good news is God has provided the word of God of which Jesus tells us in John chapter 5 that he's the main character. He says to the religious leaders, the experts of the Old Testament scripture, you search the scriptures. For in them you think you have life. Is that what we're talking about this morning? For in them you think you have life, but it is they that testify of me. 
And so you need the word about Christ so you can know more of who he is and what he's done for you and how to put it into practice. You need the body of Christ, you need the word of Christ, and then finally, this is not to the neglect of the spirit of Christ. Recognizing that you have been made new in Jesus Christ apart from the spirit is to miss the point. And so this isn't a call to now walk independently, but in dependence and surrender to the Holy Spirit. But that is the Spirit of Christ. That's what Paul calls the Holy Spirit. So when he says, just as you began in, in Christ, you began by the Word of God proclaimed about Jesus Christ. You began by the work of the Spirit of God in Jesus Christ. And you began through the work and through the support of the body of Christ. That is how you continue. Okay. But as he continues on here, again, the goal is that those things, because they all revolve around, because they all unpack, because they all put us in contact with Jesus Christ as Lord, is sufficient for the things you are facing in your life today. Which is why he says in verse 7, rooted and built up in him. Rooted and built up, I want you to notice, are both foundational ideas. Rooted is what gives a tree strength and life, right? It's through the roots that the nutrients pull up into the branches and bear fruit. Grounded, the idea is of laying a foundation. It's an architectural idea. It's about building a basement. And so the danger that Paul recognizes here is that you would settle for just being a seed in the ground, that you would settle for just being a basement of an unfinished building. God wants to build the building. He wants to grow the tree. But you cannot grow the tree apart from the roots. You cannot continue the race apart from the beginning. You cannot build the building without a solid foundation. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? When the waves come, what's the difference between the house built here and the house built here? One is built on the rock. Okay. As he continues here, he says, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Okay, now one last note on that last phrase there, overflowing with thankfulness means not just be grateful for what God did, but for what God is doing. But notice here that the earmark, the, uh, the symbol, the sign, the, the way that Christian mouths look is like gratitude. That's how Paul puts it in Ephesians. He says, put off curse, cursing, coarse jesting, lying to one another, rather giving thanks. Okay, that's what it looks like to be in Christ. But again, he presents two different models here. And the first one, the one he wants to warn us about is in verse 8. See it to, to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So how do you continue your life? How do you address the issues you're going through? How do you live the good life, the abundant life? He says, watch out for hollow and deceptive philosophies. Okay. Notice the problem with these are two things. One, they are hollow. That means that they are empty. They look good on the outside, but they're just like a balloon. Inside is just nothing. And then he says that they are deceptive. And again, I would suggest to you the danger here is that they are partial truths but won't own the fact that they are partial. Okay. 
And then, and this is a little bit intense, and you will continue to face this as you read through the book of Colossians, he says it doesn't just come from the traditions of human beings, but also from elemental spiritual forces. Paul recognizes here that behind the ways of human beings is a world of spiritual realities. Okay? And again, we should be careful not to overparse this. This isn't just alternate religions and spiritism and these types of things, but most other isms as well. This is what Paul tells us in another place. He says, one, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but two, he says, our weapons of warfare are not weapons of the flesh, but are powerful in the tearing down of strongholds. And any thoughts or ideologies that would put themselves against Jesus Christ so that we seek to take every thought captive in obedience to Jesus Christ. Okay. And so again, when those ideologies become ultimate, they become idolatrous. And Paul says here that there is a spiritual reality that lies behind that. That if you will, the devil and his minions breathe on the flames of human intelligence until the fire burns the world to death. Okay? And so the warning here is, watch out for this. And the reason he says to watch out for it is because, again, you have everything you need in Jesus Christ. And as he goes on to focus on Jesus, notice the end again of verse 8 there of this world rather than on Christ. That's the alternative. These philosophies or Christ. That's the alternative. What he does for the rest of the passage is he talks about the resources that are available to you right now as a Christian. And as he does so, he focuses on four needs that you are going to have the rest of your life because you're a fallen, finite human being in a fallen world awaiting the return of Christ. Okay? And so the first one, is what are you going to do with your weakness? And this is what he says. He says in verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Okay. He says in Christ is the fullness of who God is. Jesus said to his disciples, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay. And so if you need access to external ability, if you need to be empowered, Jesus is God come in the flesh. He is the fullness of deity in bodily form, but that's not all. Notice what he says next. He says in verse 10, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Do you see that that's the same word? The fullness of deity is in Christ, and through that, God is bringing about your own fullness. Now, if, if you want to read more about this, read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and trace this word fullness, and you will see how it plays out. But effectively, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ is capable, more capable than any other entity, more empowering than any other possibility to deal with your weaknesses, with your inability. Okay. You have the fullness of, available in Jesus Christ. It's not 90% of the way there and you just need to supplement with this other thing. You have everything you need for life in Jesus Christ because Jesus is God. And remember the God that Jesus 
displays, portrays, represents, as according to the Old Testament, it's a God of grace and not judgment. It's a God of strength. In fact, Paul tells us when he's going through something really rough and he's praying about God taking away this weakness that is prohibiting him from doing the things even that God has called him to do. And he says, my grace is sufficient for your weakness for my strength is perfected in your weakness. Okay. But notice he touches on this last part here and it feels out of place. Read again, verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is head over every power and authority. What does that last sentence have to do with what came before? Is it another item on the list? Should we put a really heavy comma there? And it's like, he is the fullness, and he's also the head. No, the recognition here is the way that we deal with weakness is we connect with those with power. And he says, any of those other lords or saviors, any of those other enablers, they're subject to Jesus. Okay. Whether they are working on his behalf as they were designed to do, or they were op- are opposing him and one day will be held accountable, they are subordinate. Okay. And this is important because here's the thing about power. When you are weak and you align yourself with someone else's power, you subordinate yourself to that. There's no option. There's no free lunch. Okay? If you seek to find your identity and your strength in some great movement, you become subordinate to that movement. There is no Savior that is not Lord. There is no idol that gives for free without demanding allegiance. But as is pointed out here, you have already been connected with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one who reigns not just over all of the powers that are on earth, but all the powers and principalities in the heavenly places, the the, uh, Lord of all creation, everything you need, you have in Christ. And again, remember what's unique, what's different about this subordination. And, And let me tell you clearly. You cannot have Jesus as Savior without Jesus as Lord. You cannot experience the free gift of salvation without surrendering fully and saying, you now determine the direction, the trajectory of my life. But that is good news. Because Jesus is the Lord who, while you were a sinner, freely and willingly while you were a rebel, while you were an enemy, came into the world and bore your rebellion upon his own shoulders to set things right. If you can trust Jesus with your salvation, you can trust him with his lordship. Okay? And so what do we do with our weakness? And you know that you're weak. You know that there are places where you just tap out and you're looking for help. Where do you go? Again, tools, fine, but ultimately, the fullness is available in Jesus Christ. Look at where he goes next here. Second, he says here in verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands, your whole self ruled by the flesh. Here's the question, what do you do with your habits? Human beings are habituated people. 
we do stuff, and when we do stuff, it becomes normative, and then it becomes controlling, okay? It becomes something that you used to choose to do, and now you have no choice. And this is true of the most uh, basic and neutral habits, and it's also true of the most destructive patterns in your life. What do you do with that when you become a Christian? Now, some of you have experienced this. Sometimes God takes those habits and just miraculously delivers you from them. The temptation is gone. The struggle is gone. But he never does that with all your habits, I promise you. In fact, some of you are going to be surprised to find that these issues that, you know, we may even call addiction in this world that are so big are easy for you, and these things that seem so normal and natural, like lying, are so hard to get rid of. And we all experience this, right? We've all had the experience of, again, sitting down and going, I can't believe I just did that again. I can't believe I just treated my spouse like that again. I can't believe I just blew up in anger again, right? What are you going to do with those habits? And the world is full of opportunities to completely transform and change you, but Paul warns you that they are hollow and deceptive but there is something that isn't. And what he says is, in Christ Jesus, you were also circumcised. Now, the reason he uses that language, it's Old Testament language, is because there's this group of people following Paul around in his ministry and saying, yes, Jesus, but also the law of Moses. And so he wants them to know in advance they have something better than the law of Moses. Not just the symbolic circumcision of the flesh, but something greater, something deeper that actually does deliver them from their habits. And this is where a place where Paul disagrees with all of the Jewish rabbis of his day. They say God provided the law to make you righteous. And Paul says, no, God provided the law to show that you are unrighteous. Okay. But you can take, you know, your, again, your character training. You can read Jordan B. Peterson on how to be a man. You can pick any system of ethics. Go all the way back to Marcus Aurelius. Do whatever you want to do. Those things can be helpful, but they cannot deal with your habits. Okay, for that, you need something greater. And notice what he says. Again, halfway through 11, he says, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. And then he doubles down, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Two things here, okay? First, God didn't just circumcise you, an external sign of a desire to be a different person. He buried you. Have you ever thought about this before? If you first become a Christian, you know that Christ died for you. But here Paul says something deeper. He says, you died with Christ. Okay. Romans 6 says the same thing. Do you not know that as many of you have been baptized in Christ Jesus, have been baptized in his death? Okay. And so who you were is dead. Now the language he uses in Romans 6, he says that the old man has been rendered inoperative. Those habits are still there. They're still present, but they no longer have to control you. Here, here's the way that I like to think of it. Paul says your old man, who you used to be, was crucified. But he's not dead. He's hanging there, right on the cross, 
nails through the feet, nails through the wrists. He no longer can wrestle you into submission. But he still can whisper. You know who you really are. You know you want to do this. You know that you're just going to screw up, so you might as well give in now. Right? But like Jennifer Conley learns at the end of the labyrinth, you have no power over me. Right? It's just words. Because you have died with Christ. And not only that, he says also, if you have died with Christ... He says here in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who God raised him from the dead. So not only is the old you dead, but there's now a new you. A new you raised by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Okay? That new you is a new way to be. A new way to form habits. A new person you are becoming. And so what do you do with your weakness? You have the fullness in Christ. What do you do with your habits? You've been buried with Christ. You've been waved with Christ. You are a new creation in Christ. And he continues here. And the next question is, what do you do with your failures? Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Okay. Now again, when you first become a Christian, you probably have a ready and available sense of your failures. You recognize that you're a sinner in need of saviors, and you're relieved to hear that Jesus came not for the healthy, but for the sick. Not for the righteous, but for sinners. That forgiveness that you experience is an incredible relief, but the truth is, you know that conceptually, and you need to learn it fully. You need to learn it deeply. You need to learn it thoroughly, and you're going to continue to make mistakes. God is at work in you to make you like Christ Jesus. That is a work in progress. You are works in progress. Perfection is something Jesus will do, not something you are right now. And actually, sometimes it's harder. Like you experience the forgiveness of Jesus, you're relieved in it, and then you have a moment to look back on your life and you think, whoa. You see the trail of dead that lays behind you. You see the relationships that you've blown up. You've seen the consequences that are still chasing you. You see all of the regrets and the sorrow. What do you do with that? And our world does have models that deal with this because this is what it means to be human. You screw up. And not just in little ways. I'm not talking about little white lies and stealing a candy bar when you're five. I'm talking about blowing up your life. I'm talking about you developing and creating toxic environments that do deep harm to other human beings made in the image of God. And when you're alone, and when you're honest, you feel all of the guilt and the shame and the regret from that. And so what do you do? Just by way of illustration, some of the modern models say guilt is subjective. It's not real. Don't worry about it. It's just the way you feel. You just need to forget doesn't work. 
Other approaches say you just need to balance it out with your good deeds. Just rock the karma. But it doesn't work because why would a good act absolve a bad act? It doesn't make it any less worse. How do you compensate someone for murder? How do you set that right? You can't. You can do good things, and those good things are good, but they do not deal with the bad. And so he reminds us here of what you know from the beginning, that Christ died for sinners. And so notice what he says here. He says that when, verse 13, you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. When you were dead, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave you all your sins. That's not when you promised to reform. That's not when you finally got your act together. And I'll tell you honestly, from the Bible's perspective, that's not even when you started looking for God. Remember, God's not the one who's lost. That's not the story of Scripture. We're the ones who's lost. He's the God who seeks and saves. He's the shepherd going after the one. Okay. But who is he going after? Not just sheep that wandered away. Rebels and enemies. Stubbornly, who Romans chapter 1 says, and this is all humanity is talking about, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. No God, no right from wrong, stick our fingers in our ear and say, nope. That's the people that God is trying to save. And so he says, while you were that, God forgave your sins. And then verse 14, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. One of the most powerful, one of the most provocative things about Christianity is it doesn't just preach a forgiving God. It preaches a crucified God. Jesus didn't just come and say, I absolve you of your sins. It's fine. He paid for them. He paid for them. Now, that's hard to wrap your head around. And you go, why is it okay for someone innocent to suffer on behalf of those who are guilty? You need to remember that, again, Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form. I, I heard it put this way. Forgiveness is always costly, okay? If somebody comes into your house and because of their roughhousing or their clumsiness or whatever, they break your lamp and you say, it's all right, I forgive you. You have two choices for it to be real forgiveness. Either you're going to go without light or you're going to buy yourself a new lamp. If you say, it's okay, I forgive you, just buy me a new lamp, that's not forgiveness. That's just justice. But forgiveness goes beyond that. And the way that forgiveness is possible is when the one who was sinned against bears the cost of that sin. That's what Jesus did. Listen to the words of John in 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever thought about that phrase? Not faithful and merciful, just because your sins have been paid for. Because the cup of God's wrath, all of his well-deserved, completely righteous anger was drank to the dregs by Jesus Christ. And so Paul can say, of all of you in this room who know Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Your guilt, your shame, you need to learn how to apply the cross of Christ to that, but they are paid for. They have been dealt with. They have been absolved. They were nailed to the cross, and there they remain. So what are you going to do with your failures? 
And then finally, what are you going to do with your enemies? Look at what he says in verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In the cross, we have victory. And I'll remind you, from a biblical standpoint, you may have human beings who show you animosity. You may have enemies in that sense, but they are only enemies in the same way that a child soldier is an enemy. They have been conscripted, even enslaved, to these other ideologies, and the hatred, again, is stoked, as Paul says here, by the powers and principalities. And so we wrestle not against flesh and blood, even though flesh and blood may wrestle us. And so the ultimate enemies, the capital E enemies, the ones that are actually standing in opposition to your life, are these powers and principalities that are diametrically opposed to your well-being because you were made in the image of the God they're rebelling against. Okay? But he says, in Jesus Christ they have been, notice that first word, disarmed. Disarmed. Their weapons have been taken from them. Okay? In fact, he says more, that, more than that, he says they've been disarmed and then they've been made a public spectacle of. Okay? Now, the language here from public spectacle comes from the Roman world. When a Roman emperor would go out and uh, conquer an enemy army, they would have a parade. And of course, the parade would have the emperor who led the troops in a battle and the soldiers who performed honorably, and the last ones in the line would be the prisoners of war. That's this word made public spectacle of them, okay? And it says also that he triumphed over them. The idea here is that somehow Jesus Christ has exposed the powers for the frauds they are. He's exposed them like the Wizard of Oz. They're a humbug, okay? And so you no longer need to fear that the enemies will get the best of you the outcome of the war isn't determined, that this could go either way, because they have been disarmed and exposed, revealed for all they are. And think of how this is, okay? The powers and principalities, the government, the the greatest empire the earth has ever known, the Roman Empire, stands opposed to Jesus Christ and throws everything they have at him. But Jesus is alive. And that's not because Jesus came, as he will one day, on a white horse with a sword in his mouth to triumph over his enemies. It's in surrender. It's in weakness. It's in vulnerability. It's in exposure. And there is an important point there. There is no victorious Christian life that doesn't look like crucifixion. There is no resurrection that doesn't lead through death. There is no strength in the Christian life that doesn't take the path of weakness. There is no representation of the kingdom of God that doesn't turn the other cheek. Okay. But we do so because what we have cannot be taken from us. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, For I know that neither death nor life nor sword nor hunger, nor things that are, or things to come, nor the powers on earth, nor the powers in heaven. He's literally trying to list everything he can think of. He says, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What they can do to us, 
is temporary and what they can take from us is nothing. Okay. And again, recognize the need here. You are going to experience animosity, opposition, enmity. You are going to experience resistance. You're going to wonder if you can make it through. You're going to wonder what this means. You're going to look at the world as it is and go, why does it look like evil is triumphing? Has there ever been a time as significant for that question as when the very Son of God, who lived a life of perfect righteousness and love, is being crucified by the people he came to save? And yet that was God's victory. That was God's triumph. That was God's means of salvation. So why would you settle for mangosteen? That's Paul's point here. If you're going to walk in Christ, you're going to walk in Christ. And so whether you've been a Christian for a long time and have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and you can look back and you can go, I have a more fully formed conception of Jesus and a deeper relationship with Jesus and a heart filled with more gratitude for Jesus than I ever have. Or if you're a new Christian and you're just taking your first steps, the next steps for all of us are always right here in these things. As Pastor Timothy Keller used to say, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity and then it's like, okay, now how do I really do stuff? Give me the advanced class. It's the A to Z. It's where you begin. It's how you continue. It's where you will ultimately finish. Okay. And most importantly, God has provided everything you need for life and godliness. Let's pray. Father, my biggest fear for my brothers and sisters here is that we would look at the empty philosophies that kid believes in, that neighbor's obsessed with, and we wouldn't see the places where we're trying to fill gaps with sand. And so I just ask humbly, Lord, knowing that Paul doesn't give warnings unless we need them, I ask humbly that you would open our eyes to the places where we are seeking through man-made means or even spiritual alliances to deal with our weakness to deal with our habits, to deal with our failure, to deal with our enemies that are not of Christ. I remembered of the, the words that Jeremiah speaks to Israel when he says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken the fountain of living water and have made for themselves broken pots that can hold no water. God, help us identify the broken pots that we just keep pouring into thinking this is going to quench my thirst and it just flows right out the bottom. And help us to get reacquainted with the fountain of living water, the inexhaustible, completely satisfying, wholly sufficient, everything we need, Jesus who is Lord and Savior. And I pray for any who is here who does not yet know you. I pray that they would understand with the help of your spirit that the gospel is not just an optional way to be. It is the divine provision for life in a world of death. I pray that you would soften their hearts, 
that your spirit, the same one that Paul talks about working in Christians today, would work in their hearts and draw them to yourself. And I also pray that we would continue as Christians to faithfully represent a gospel like this, a holistic gospel that doesn't just deal with our heaven or hell conundrum, but with all of the problems of fallen people living in a fallen world. Thank you. Fill our mouths with gratitude as we see your good work readily available in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.